Hey founders, listen up, this one's for you. Disrupt SF goes down this fall, and if you haven't heard of it, I'm a little bit worried about you, but also super excited to tell you about it. Part of Disrupt is the startup battlefield. It is our premier startup competition, and it is intense, let me tell you. The winner will get $100,000 in equity-free prize money. That's right, we don't take shares. But if we did, and we were a VC fund, I think we'd be one of the best. We've launched over 900 companies with 115 exits, and those companies have raised more than $9 billion. They include folks like Dropbox, GetAround, and Cloudflare. We are looking for the most exciting and innovative early stage companies across the globe. All you need is an MVP and preferably limited to no press coverage. Are you interested? Just go to apply.techcrunch.com today and get started. Hopefully we'll see you there. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we each and every week unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined as every week by Danny Crichton, TC's managing editor. Danny, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm prepared for this snowstorm that's about to hit the, the New England corridor. Yeah, this is why we're all kind of crossed with Natasha, because she's going to be warm in California, and Danny and I are going to get a blizzard in the middle of May, and I just... I can't stand it. I'm, I'm actually livid at the weather this year. And I know I'm the old man, Alex, but like, it's insane that this is going to happen. I'm just uh, sorry. Tosh, hi. Hi, I am. I feel severely out of touch now for not even knowing that there was going to be a winter storm of sorts. One year into moving to San Francisco, I'm no longer close to my East Coast. Oh, man, it's good. I've forgotten what good burritos taste like and you've forgotten what snow is. And so I think that's the swap <laughs> as you go across the Mississippi River on a plane. All right. Well, anyways, guys, there's a lot to get through. I want to start with a topic near and dear to my heart, though, which is Techstars. Um, one of the big three American accelerator groups, YC, 500, Techstars, kind of sure. is how I think about it. And they've been having a, a grip of virtual demo days, as you know, everyone is in 2020 because of COVID and all that. Techstars has a number of batches, if you will, around the country. How many of the Techstars intra-Techstars demo days have you been to? I've been to two of them, and I have to say I liked the way they formatted them. They're kind of, the Boston one, for example, was in a Q&A format, so the founder would pitch live, mm -hmm. the head of the program would ask questions, and they're a smaller batch compared to 500 NYC, but I thought that was a nice way to, I guess, break it up and not try and be something they're not. Yeah, I have a I have a soft spot in my heart for like campiness on a live stream because I know how hard it is to do live well. It's essentially impossible, which is why TV is so scripted. But, you know, I've been to two or three to give people an example of how many there are. There were two this week. There's a lot of different Techstars batches. There's a lot to keep track of. But like everyone else, they've had to go onto the Internet and, you know, doing the live version felt more personal to me in the Boston case, as opposed to 500, which I think was much more of like a than playing clips. As, you know what I mean? I think I preferred the Techstars way, if I'm totally honest. It felt more more human, although risky. I don't know. Yeah, definitely a luxury because they had a smaller batch to begin with to be able to do that. I, I second your point on like how jankiness kind of works in this setting. They had like a cameo to shout out all the batch startups. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, it, it was uh, Ice, Ice Cube. And he read out the names of the portfolio companies. And if you're an old school hip hop fan, it was a pretty cool moment. If you're not, 
it probably made very little sense, yeah. but it was it was certainly a thing that happened. Yeah, and I guess the last thing I'll say about these these new demo days we're seeing is that it feels like every accelerator is is being like we are changing up the demo day and it's all going to be okay, but it's not going to replace I guess the organic generalist VC meeting that niche VC that convinced them for the first time to invest in like ag tech. I just think that that is something that is yet to be recreated well. And I want to give one shout out. Uh, we did a piece uh, on TC kind of looking at our favorite companies from the the various tech stars demo days. I wrote this with Sheber, uh, a fantastic part of the TC team. And there's one company that's been stuck in my head since I, I watched their thing. It's called Phoenix Tailings. It's part of the Boston group. And if you don't know how, how mining works, mining is awful for the world. It's just terrible. And not only is it the, the hydrocarbons burned to extract things, it's the enormous tailing ponds or tailing pools, which are essentially artificial lakes full of toxic chemicals that are left over after the mining process. And Phoenix Tailings wants to essentially mine the tailing ponds, which is brilliant. And if it works, it can actually make the world a much better place. And it would have, in VC terms, a huge TAM. But like, I love seeing startups that are not just like how to get, you know, me food faster inside of SF. It's like, we're going to go out there and actually make the world better. So Phoenix Tailings, super cool. Don't know if it's going to work. Obviously, it's super early stage, but I love the direction they're going in. And Tosh, you liked them too, if I recall, when we were on the live stream together. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was really refreshing. And whenever you see a startup that's, yeah, not, not just on SaaS, but just hey. be more than... <laughs> Oh no! I was like, crap, this is a I family can't program that. here. Oh we, no! We no the the profanity was fine. It was dissing sass that was not okay. <laughs> Just Alex things, but it, yeah, it is always nice to see a startup that kind of makes you pause and say, "Huh, I didn't think that that was a place that that would have a, a a crew trying to trying to make it easier for a lot of people that are working really hard." Yeah. Now I want to I want to pivot this a little bit back to YC and re remind everyone that YC said they're not going to be doing. I think they were doing like pro rata in all future investments and now they're not going to do that because their lps weren't into it and a different vc firm said they're now going to do pro rata in all of their their like later stage offerings tasha you've been looking at this and i'm curious what's the breakdown of vcs that are doing more pro rata versus less and what does that do for the the, the world of like signal yeah so first round capital last friday okay. uh came out with this program called the second round guarantee that's saying that if they invest in you in your first round, they'll definitely invest with you in your second round up to, I believe, three million in pro rata. The, the story with that is that this isn't new from first round. It's just the first time they're announcing it externally. And I think that's where signaling comes in. And Danny, would love for you to weigh in on this. I think that that's right. I mean, look, VCs care a lot about signaling for reasons that are still unclear to me. It's just basically game theory. You know, you have uh, a group of people, you know, the existing investors on the cap table who know the company intimately, they've followed the company, they've been with the company for a while, and any decision that they make is, you know, magnified, right? So if they're not investing in the next round, it must say something that you don't know about the underlying company. They have information that you can't see. It's similar to uh, an insurance company trying to do underwriting, right? Someone comes to the front door and says, I want renter's insurance. And you're like, well, how do I know that you're not the bad person? You you know more about your rental situation than I do. And that's one of the reasons we have like really intense regulation around insurance markets, but VCs don't. And so they care a lot about signaling. They care about uh, adverse selection. They care about moral hazard. You know, the, the reality is I, I used to say in the last, like in 2018, 2019, that signaling became less important. Rounds got more competitive. Just everyone was moving really quickly. I think signaling has really jumped in importance. Oh, so it's back. Um, at least what I've heard over the last couple of weeks. It's definitely back. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, is everyone knows everyone's triaging. And so if firms are doubling down, that probably means the company's in the top 20%, 30% of the portfolio. If they're not triaging, 
and they're not kind of investing in that, that next round, it's a really strong signal that the, the firm doesn't see that as like a viable company or one that's in you know their top kind of quartile. And so I think the signaling is both stronger from existing VCs, and so other VCs are paying more close attention to it today. Can you tell us what you mean by triaging? I, I think I know, but I want to make sure that we are on the same page about what that word means. Yeah, I think over the last two months, basically every major VC firm has done a portfolio review in which they go, you know, literally line by line in every single investment they've made and said, hey, what's the current status of this company? What's its uh, run rate? And then what's sort of our policy and how we're going to approach it? Do we want to double down on that company and put more money in? Are we trying to back them and try to find other money? What's often known as OPM or other people's money? Or is there something else where you're saying, no, we think this company is going to go to zero, just cut it off, right? You know, like a limb that you don't need anymore and just surgically remove it from the portfolio company. And, and frankly, like a lot of firms are having to make tough calls right now. You know, if you're not able to fundraise a new fund or you're at the end of a fund, but you might have eight or 10 companies that all need $20 million in the coming weeks to survive coronavirus, you know, some firms have to make tough calls or they're going to lose a lot on dilution in a, you know, kind of a fire sale round. And so, yeah. you know, again, Firms are kind of making those tough calls, which means that the signaling that they send is much, much better. It's based on quality information. They've done the work. You know, that's what a lot of partnerships were doing the last couple of weeks was actually doing that line by line analysis. Like they know how their companies are doing right now. And so those signals are better informed and stronger than they've ever been before. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. You want to be more careful, but it suck to be one of the companies who gets cut off. I also wanted to bring in one last data point before we go into funding rounds which was, I guess, all consistency we're seeing with how firms are investing in Pareto. Some of them are just saying off the bat, we will not be investing in Pareto for the companies that we're funding in the seed stage. So next few ventures launched an accelerator. And I asked them, if someone from the accelerator does well, will you be funding them beyond your initial check? And they said, we explicitly, you know, in the launch post said, we will not be funding them going forward just to avoid, I guess, extra negative signaling. Right. And, and that that's a $200,000 investment for an 8% stake in like, I think 10 or fewer companies. So it's not a huge amount of money, but they are putting right. capital in. But by saying, Danny, make sure that I have this right, they are doing no future investments in these companies. There's no possibility of negative signaling because they're not, not doing it by choice. They're not doing it by default. That's right. You know, there's no, some of them are yes, some of them are no, and therefore you have some information about what's going on behind the scenes. If they're always consistent, it doesn't matter whether consistency yet, you know, yes, or consistently no, right. um, you don't get any information from that. And in next few's case, my sense is, is that with 8% ownership, you know, they probably have like a 10 or 12% ownership target. So they're already kind of where they want to be on that round size. And so um, inevitably, they're going to get to some of these companies where they're saying, look, we already kind of have the ownership we want, we want to move on, you know, by saying and announcing it publicly, they get out of those tough conversations with entrepreneurs who, look, I've, I've had to deal with this personally, where you know, entrepreneurs are shocked when you don't want to do Parada. And sometimes it has, you know, we, we were just having a conversation with Hunter Walk um, mm -hmm. on EC Live. And one of the challenges you have as a venture firm is as those rounds get bigger and bigger and later and later stage, the Parada check oftentimes is much larger than the original early stage check you made in the company. Right. You know, your $2 million seed round in order to avoid dilution and do your Parada might be a $25 million check at the Series E, right? And if you think about it from a portfolio management perspective, Suddenly you have like five or six of these massive checks at the late stage and a tiny little like seed fund on the other side. And, doesn't really work you know, out. Right. It doesn't work out. And you're now a growth fund. Like that's really what it's become, right? Like from an LP perspective, you're no longer in the seed bucket. You're in the growth fund bucket because most of your money is at these pro rata late stage growth rounds. And so most firms now are a little bit more public and a little bit clearer on saying like beyond a certain point, 
or like in first round, you know, we're only going to do up to 3 million bucks total in pro rata going forward. Beyond yeah. that, you're on your own. And it helps to avoid the signaling problem, but it also reminds the entrepreneurs of like, hey, we're going to back you, we're going to support you. But like other forms of capital exist to like help in those additional rounds. And that's not what we do. I think, I think it's a really good topic, but I want to put it down. I want to go to some actual rounds, a couple that really talked about this. We can try to pick out our favorite ones. And, and two that were super cool uh, were Peanut and Every Mother. Tosh, can you walk us through what's up with those? So Peanut raised $12 million. It's now at $21.8 million in total funding. And it's considered as a social network for moms. I was really excited about this because I think you see niche networks pop up to kind of recreate the harmony that happens on Facebook groups, but like in a really great productized, really beautifully packaged way for equity. I was looking up at my Facebook groups I'm a part of, and I'm part of this like little brown diary. And it's called, it's like basically for brown girls, Indian Americans and people all over the world in this like brown girl community. And that group is popping. There's 23,000 people. When I saw Peanut raise money, closed during the pandemic, nonetheless, yeah. I thought um, of how important that was. And so it's a $12 million Series A, and it's led by EQT Ventures. Guys, I have to confess, I don't know who that is. Do we know who EQT I, is? I believe, I believe they're European-based. And I, I generally have the sense that they're a very large fund that mostly do later stage rounds. I believe they're a growth shop. So I, did, oh. I, I didn't know they did rounds as early, but I could be totally wrong about that. They have not done a lot of advertising. Yeah, that that's for sure. Um, but, but to me, what was uh, uh, great about this is, is exactly as Tosh said, you know, Facebook has made groups the center of its kind of campaign and product over the last 18 months. You know, they've moved from a model of like your high school friends, your professional colleagues, your non-work friends are all in one jumble on a timeline to all these private spaces. And in most of Facebook's modern messaging, it's all about groups, groups, groups. I think what you're going to see is not just Peanut, but you're finding all kinds of more niche-focused social networks that, you know, in some cases, it's just that the network is more focused and you're meeting the right kind of people. But in many cases, say in the professional world, you know, LinkedIn is being disrupted by 20 other professional networks where you're meeting people, the product's designed to have the kinds of conversations you're looking to have. So whether that's for engineers or designers or sales folks, um, you can share in a much more different way and more, more concentrated because you're actually targeting a specific type of user, whereas Facebook is general for everyone in the world. And I think the reason I, I think that these niche social networks will do so well is because unlike a lot of the networking companies or co-working spaces that are moving online right now, these are kind of digitally native products. And I just believe in them much more. I believe their community is close to 2 million women right wow. now talking about topics like fertility and motherhood and soon menopause. So there's definitely an audience for it. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading the Sarah Perez piece um, before the show, just refreshing my mind about the round. And I love the the attention to feature de feature detail. Like you can kind of get rid of certain things if you don't want to see certain topics. If you're working on something kind of in your life and you don't want others to be in there, um, it seemed to be really intentionally built. And I think that's the power of of niche social networks because you can do tunings to the the feature set that Facebook can't do for groups writ large. And that's by a, a way to take down you know Facebook's push. But by the way, um, Danny, are you still on Facebook? Quite curious about that. I I pop in. You know they they do notifications once a week to try to keep their weekly active user numbers up. So ah. I get the, someone somewhere in the world has texted something and you should check check it out. And the little red dot won't go away unless I open the app. Um, but I, I've actually been shocked because I think I still have something like 1600 friends or some you know ridiculous Facebook number, but I only have like 10 or 12 original posts a week. Like that network really? does not post to the timeline yeah. no, whatsoever, yeah, no except for no one of our work colleagues who posts a lot to Facebook. Um, almost no one else does on a regular basis. And so I've actually been shocked at how much like 
there's just nothing. And I'm not in any groups for the most part on Facebook. I really don't use it that much. But it, it, as a timeline, Facebook is useless. Huh. Gone. So it's dead. Are you seeing the same thing, Tosh? That people aren't active on, on Facebook, the public side of the big blue app? Yeah, I think there's like a sort of vulnerability that groups have that the timeline doesn't. Like, I don't know, we all have like our family members on there. So I'm like not going to post just like anything on my on my timeline other than like self-promotion stuff, which I still do. To that, be completely to- honest. Totally valid. You, yeah. you got you got you got to promote yourself. Let's talk about every mother. I was I was excited about this one, but the, the dollar amount was small and they gave us the valuation. It, this was a surprising story. So walk us through it. Yes. So every mother raised 1.5 million at a 9 million post money valuation. It's kind of this fitness streaming platform for expecting mothers and mothers that just had a baby. So it focuses kind of on pre and postnatal care. The reason I think it's it's more than a, a fitness focused Zoom call is that specifically in in a situation with pregnancy where health is so central, it's it's not just about doing like a hit class, but it's about making sure that you're not hurting yourself just by following any random YouTube video. This platform really promises clinically proven fitness methods to deal with a lot of the conditions that women get from traditional exercise while being pregnant. It's a cool it's a cool company, and uh, I'll just shout them out: Courtside Ventures, uh, Serena Williams, Serena Ventures, and TechStars Ventures. So they kind of have a, a cool list of firms and a cool list of angels as well. But let's talk about the only thing that's really been going on in the startup world lately, which is fintech. I feel like this is the thing that won't go away: fintech and edtech. I guess Tosh, you've been really busy. Because you're the two things you write about have been blowing up. <laughs> no regrets. So here's a crazy fact. Robinhood raised its Series F a couple of days ago. I know it feels like it was last month, but they, the Series F was completed. I think it was this week. I think it was Monday or something. $280 million round Series F at an $8.3 billion valuation. And we've all kind of known this was coming. Bloomberg broke that they were raising. And uh, the only data point that really is useful here for conversation and discussion is that uh, I think they saw $60 million in revenue in, in like, March, which is up like 3x from February. So in the current moment, as we've written a lot on the site, savings and investing apps and services are seeing an explosion in use. Robinhood is part of that. So they raise more money, makes a lot of sense. Here's my question. Their valuation used to go up by like two or three or four billion every round. And this time it went from like, you know, 7.6 billion last March to like 8.3 billion now, which when you deduct the amount of capital they raise is not that much growth. So why didn't they get a higher valuation? Were they overvalued before being conservative now? Danny, I don't know if you have a perspective, but I would love to hear your notes on kind of why they priced where they did. I mean, it's always about timing, right? I mean, even on fast growing companies, I think, you know, they raised at 7.6 billion roughly in mid 2019. So it's nine months. It's so it's still an up round. I, I think the big question to me long term is, you know, what's the value of having these stock accounts? Um, I forget, we were talking about one of the neo banks recently last week. And we had calculated that the average account held on the neobank had like $125 into it. Yeah, stash. And, um, you know, when we did this, it was like, wow, like these are really small checking accounts. Like, yes, of course, that's like a huge swath of the population. But how do you really produce money? How do you produce the fee structures in order to do the revenues there? And so I think one of the questions long term for Robinhood is, look, there's a lot of competition entering this marketplace. You know, the traditional brokers did take a long time to start to kind of figure out the disruption that Robinhood was offering their market. But the reality is it's getting a lot easier and a lot more competitive. There's more and more options against Robinhood, both for traditional stock and equities, as well as in the crypto space. And so, you know, 
to me, the valuations have always been based on the number of active users, which has traditionally been like the right metric in financial products. It's expensive to acquire uh, financial users. And once you have them, you tend to be able to offer multiple services. You can offer banking, lending, stock trading, all kinds of other things. But I, I, I wonder if they're not getting a little bit of multiple compression, less than growth compression, but just multiple compression, where maybe they're still growing the same amount. Maybe they're actually growing more ambitiously. I mean, I, uh, you know, more people are trading the last two months than probably the last, you can look at the volumes for, you know, the NYSE, like people are trading like mad in March and April, mm -hmm. but all that trading activity may not actually translate if the value of every account is going down. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the question I have too, though, Danny, on that is like, why are people still investing and trading so much? It just feels so counterintuitive to me. And I know the data says that like we're seeing these surges, but I just I'm just baffled at that. I, I, I have an idea about this because I've been thinking a lot about it. That there's been a standard bit of wisdom in, in about investors since I first bought a share of stock and I was like 14 or something. And it's that regular folks, us who buy stock, uh, if you invest in individual shares, love to buy too late when things are expensive and then panic sell when they're going down. Like individual investors suck. They're rubes. They're idiots. They're noobs, etc. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe people are showing up now because when stocks went down, trading went up. Maybe they were trying to get in at a bargain. Maybe their people are less dumb. It's hard to make that argument because I've met people and I, you know, <laughs> I have evidence to the contrary. Unlike but, equity readers and listeners who are very smart and are trading at exactly the right moments in the market. I, I would let an equity listener manage my, no, I wouldn't. But I mean, more so than a guy off the street, right? I, I feel like I got baited into dissing the audience. Um, you guys are all lovely, and, and, and you look great today. Here's what I was going to say: They went from 1.3 billion valuation of their Series C in 2017 to 8 billion today. You know that's an insane amount of value creation. So I presume they have shown a, a, a strong ability to monetize these people. The question is, if volume goes down because shares have gone back up again, perhaps that's deprecating their their trading volume. If revenue goes down, how do you value it? Coinbase had some uh, huge moments in late 2018, I think. When Bitcoin was spiking, they just made tons of money and everyone thought they were going to become a $100 billion company and then volume went down and revenue, we presume, declined. So there's some swings to this. But with another quarter billion in the bank, surely they have enough capital to go along for like another you know, 12 months. I guess a nuance here is like we don't know exactly when Robinhood closed this round. They, they, we emailed them. They said that they're refusing to tell us when, which is fine. But um, if we did know if it closed amid a pandemic, that might also give be one of the reasons why the valuation gain was was a little less than traditional. And then one last data point, and then I, I want to get off the fintech thing. But I, I ran across some numbers that are worth sharing. So uh, let's play a fun game. I love I love games. Oh God! Of the six largest neobank slash challenger bank rounds in the world in 2019, what was their rough dollar value to the nearest hundred million? Top six neobank or challenger rounds, 2019, total dollar value to the nearest 100 million. So like you could say 1.2 billion, for example. This is why I, I don't have it, friends, but. I'm, I'm going to do something like 12.5 billion, 8 billion, 3, 2.52, something like that. So Danny said seven numbers. Tosh, can you give me one, please? Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. I'm just a little bit confused about this game. Okay. Is it? <laughs> this game round? sucks, Alex. This game sucks. <laughs> this game no, is I great. The rule sucks. <laughs> I want to play it. But you're saying like dollar value for the round or valuation? So if you took all the, the, the investment amount of the top six largest neobank slash challenger rounds from oh. last year and added them together. So like 100 million plus 200 million. Plus okay, okay, okay. Oh. Top six. What's the dollar <laughs> value of those? I thought the valuation of each of the top six. That's no. what I was like, that's a big number. Okay, I'm going to guess a solid 
a solid 1.7 billion. 1.7 billion. 2.8. Ooh, Tosh was closer. 1.9. Let's effing go. Let's go. <laughs> My game's a victory. Okay. Uh, <laughs> see, this is why people are like, I why do you that. have a script? And I'm like, it's so we can go off the script and invent games and watch Danny lose. That's why. Well, I expect a yodeler to go up a mountain face right now and, and you know, uh, for the prices right. So, so <laughs> Natasha won. She's under the, the number and I'm terribly over and the yodeler has died. The whole point of that anecdote, which took longer than I thought it was going to take to get through, was that there's been a lot of money. I had a point. It wasn't just a random exercise. There's been a lot of money going into uh, these companies. And uh, that makes me curious about why this last round, this series F, was only 280 that is not nearly the largest round that Robin has raised in a single chunk. So less valuation gain, uh, smaller dollar amount. I wonder if it was raised, as Tosh said earlier on. Um, but uh, if you have anything, of course, equitypod at techcrunch.com. And uh, now I think, guys, we have to pivot to the uh, bad news. Shall we? Shall we do it? Let's do it. Okay. Um, so uh, if, you, if you didn't watch the news this week, congrats. You probably feel great. Um, if you did, there were you know, two major rounds of layoffs and a bunch of smaller ones. Um, uh, I'll do Airbnb because I got the email, I guess. Okay. Airbnb emailed us this week and said, hey, you know, will you agree to an embargo? I said, yes. And then they sent over a, a PDF of an internal memo, if you will, from Brian Chesky. And there was an embargo time for about an hour from there. First time I've ever gotten layoffs on embargo. It's kind of a strange sign of the times. Um, yeah. Airbnb uh, is laying off uh, or in the process of cutting about 1,900 positions out of 7,500, which uh, I think is about 25%, about a quarter of their entire workforce. They also said that the revenue for this year is projected to be under 50% of 2019. So I went back through uh, you know, reporting and kind of his, what we know about Airbnb's size and their, uh, their net revenue, not GMV was I think about 4.8 billion last year. So that means they're going to have less than 2.4 billion in revenue this year. And uh, you know, they have some variable costs, but not enough to make that financially viable. And so they're going to lay off an enormous amount of people. Um, did you guys read the memo, by the way, that they published? Yeah, I did. And I mean, this was one of those cases where obviously we've been tracking that the travel is, gonna, is, is being hit in every way it, it could ever be right now. But seeing almost 2,000 people be laid off from Airbnb was really gutting in a way because it's a really big number. It's this unicorn that, despite its struggles in the past, felt some sort of stable, at least in an optimistic way. Yeah. Um, and on the point of the memo, the thing that stood out to me was them basically saying like travel is going to look a lot different after this and and it means caring less about like airbnb lux treatments and airbnb hotels and to me i guess that was it's it's more than just a layoff it's like such a fundamental change to what airbnb is going to be doing going forward and it was yeah pretty shaking yeah i also paid a lot of attention to how they're taking care of these people and this is something that they got a lot of praise for at least on on my my twitter timeline people kept pointing this out to me. I don't know if you guys saw the same thing, but yeah. um, I'm going to riff from memory. And if we're wrong, we'll correct it in post. Uh, 14 weeks of, uh, of paid um, severance and you get an extra week, depending on how many years you've been in Airbnb, they were going to round up. So if you've done a year and seven months, you would get an extra two weeks. Um, they're going to cover Cobra for 12 months in the US. So you get some health insurance coverage. The rules are a little bit different uh, in other countries that have different rules about severance and that sort of thing. But generous is the word I'm trying to get to here that Airbnb was, was intelligently um, going to pay a little extra as they let these people go to make sure they leave in good, in good stead, because I presume they want to hire them back. 
in a year or two. They want these people back. They know how Airbnb works and so forth. So uh, I was impressed with that. Um, sad. And, and Danny, just to back me up here, there's no Airbnb IPO this year, right? No, there's definitely no IPO. I mean, I, to me, the interesting story here is, you know, it could have IPO'd last year. I wonder what would have happened if it had been a public company now. I mean, to me, like, unlike WeWork, which is, you know, kind of an obvious story of failure well before coronavirus, and then coronavirus sort of put the final nail in a very well-crafted coffin that took a lot of money <laughs> and still going through the, the ringer over there. You know, Airbnb was a good company, right? Like, I, yes. I think the business model, it was profitable at times, it's unprofitable at times, it's still growing rapidly. Employee headcount was also growing rapidly. And, you know, it was always sort of on the touch of IPO. Now, going through this, like, crisis, you know, is, is it not better to be a private company right now? You know, don't they have a lot more flexibility than if they were reporting numbers, dealing with the market? You know, they want to treat their employees well. Well, the market wouldn't have responded well to that. Like, Amazon stock last week crashed... Mm -hmm. So quite a bit after the company announced that they were trying to try to meet, you know, their warehouse workers halfway and try to offer more wages and, and benefits. Like the stock was one of the largest drops in the stock's recent history. Investors don't want to hear that the company's going to increase expenses. And so I just wonder if, you know, maybe they got a little bit lucky, maybe staying private longer actually, you know, just because of the randomness of and serendipity of events, like they were actually working out really well. Whereas I think if they were a public company right now, it'd be really tough times. You know, there'd be even more significant cuts. So maybe, and I know we need to move on to Uber so we can wrap up on time, but like, here's just a just listening to that, Danny. I, I don't actually agree because if they'd gone public, they would have done a direct listing because they had a lot of cash and they were profitable at the time. So you can do the cool kid IPO. And then they probably would have done something like, you know, a follow-on offering of, you know, maybe a, a billion or two of shares because they would have been writing pretty high. So you want to capitalize on that. In my view, a direct listing is just a delay until you sell some shares at a higher price and letting the market price you so you don't get the, the Bill Gurley tweet storm. They would have had more cash going into this. They wouldn't have had to borrow the money that they did at such high rates and such uh, embarrassing conversion valuation points, and they maybe could have kept more people. But of course, I'm speculating that they would have done that at all. I, I think that they have more flexibility being private right now. I think they did raise $2 billion in, in two tranches of a, a billion bucks each. The terms, from what we understand, are not good, but they can refinance. Right. And so in six months, when everything gets better, you go back to the market, you cut the interest rate in half, you know, the conversion rates go down, you wipe out the debt, you get new debt. Um, you know, again, there's a lot of flexibility there. So um, again, I, I think it's a rare case in which I would say, man, thank God they didn't go public in December. You know, their, their first oh, earnings true. probably would have been literally in the middle of coronavirus. But I just can't imagine what that would have done from a morale perspective, from a company strategic perspective, from a board perspective. Imagine all the kinds of hedge funds that are going to be circling the drain on that one. I, I just think that they're in a good place right now. Yeah, I think that flexibility and the morale is kind of why I am Team Danny in this point. Because I mean, to get sentimental for a second, like every Y Combinator cohort starts off with a talk from Airbnb's founders, because they're like the classic proud Y Combinator batch company. But if they're a public now, we could see the dang numbers. And how cool would that be? So selfishly, <laughs> they should have gone public back in like, I don't know, Q418. That, uh, yes. Okay, let, let's let's do the the Uber stories, because there's two. And then, then we can wrap it up, because we're going a little bit long. And I, I know um, we want to keep all this. So Uber uh, is doing layoffs as well. Uh, how much attention did you guys pay to this when it finally came out? I'm curious. Tosh, were you reading, like, were you staying close on this? Or was it kind of distant for you? 
It was it was distant for me because it felt like I, I've been seeing it on Twitter. And I guess I just got confused when I saw that they were potentially leading an investment in Lime and also cutting people. So yeah, please explain it's, it's a why. Str- it's a strange combination. So they're cutting, I think it's 14% or about 3,700 employees, hitting customer service hard and their recruiting team. If you're a startup, the first thing you do is you turn off marketing and then you stop hiring new people and then you only do backfills. And then at some point you just let your recruiting team go because you don't need to bring on more people because you're not hiring and they can't do much else. That's their job. Letting those people go makes a lot of sense. And then the next day, the Lime story came and Uber's putting, I think it's $170 million into Lime at like a 510 post or something. So we're an enormous come down from their $2.4 billion last valuation. And the question is why? Well, they're going to stick jump into Lime and get that off its books so it doesn't suck its cash down. Because for a while, micromobility looked like a growth story for Uber. And now it looks like an enormous, I don't know, what's the ring around your neck that pulls you into the sea? It's from the Bible. You know, it's better to... All right. It's an anchor, but it's not. Not an anchor. It's a collar. It's been a long week, y'all. This is what we got. Uh, anyways, <laughs> it's a millstone around their neck. There you go. It's, there it's you a, go. It's a millstone. I was very close to getting that right the first time. And then I didn't. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I'm curious, Danny, if you think that this divestment of, of, of money and then staff into Lime is going to help Lime survive or if this is just, you know, forestalling the, the, uh, the obvious conclusion of that story. You know, I, I don't say this uh, too often. I have no idea what's going on here. Like, I, I really can't make heads or tails of it. I, I, I don't understand how it works with Jump. Obviously, Lime is acquiring the assets of Jump, I guess. So they're sort of merging a, a little, you know, they didn't have the winning bet in the space. Let's call it that way. So I think they still believe in micromobility. Um, you know, the, the larger story we have, we were, we're recording this on Thursday and Uber earnings come out in like 45 minutes after the show. So we're, I could be murdered minutes. for what, what I'm saying. Uh, but like, look, what happened to Uber Eats? Like what happened to this company? Delivery's way up. They could have totally owned it. Micromobility would have been great for delivery. Look, all the delivery folks here in New York, they're all in little scooters running around with, with food. Like why did this all not work together? Like there's an amazing company here. And I think the lesson I've taken over the last couple of years is just, it's just not coming together. I, I actually think if you have a spectrum from WeWork to Airbnb, <laughs> where Airbnb was a profitable business at times and, and could choose to be profitable, sort of in Amazon's kind of way, right? Like it can kind of just choose to turn on the money spigot when it wants. I think Uber's much closer to the WeWork model, which is like fundamentally, there's things that are wrong. They haven't been able to figure it out. Food delivery hasn't compensated. They're, they're hemorrhaging, from what I hear, against DoorDash. And it just, uh, the, it looks like a strategic mess. And so to me, you asked about the layoffs, like, I actually thought 14% was quite low for a company that I otherwise thought was like really falling apart. And my, the sense I'm getting from, you know, some of our sources, some of our internal discussions is like, there's more going to be coming. Oh, I yeah. mean, the reality is, is like, if you believe that the, the market here is down by more than half in a very uh, loss producing company, hemorrhaging dollars, uh, Eats isn't coming up and Lime, you know, uh, doesn't seem to be the, the savior story here. Uh, I don't see how you can do a 14% layoff and not have more. Um, we, we got to, we got to wrap up guys. We could talk all day cause there's so much cool stuff, but I'll just say back in like 2015, I wrote a draft entitled the bear case on Uber. And then Ryan Lawler, a former TC staffer uh, made fun of me and I didn't publish it. Wish I had. All right. Uh, that's equity. Danny. Thank you. Thank you, Tosh. And, uh, guys, we'll be back Monday morning. In the meantime, stay cool.